Well, this is uh, uh, what we're doing is we're going through the book of Acts, which is the book in the Bible that describes how the church first began. So before Jesus came, there were the Jews, and uh, 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 God primarily presented himself through a specific ethnic people. And then what we find when Jesus came to earth is that now his people move beyond a particular ethnicity, although other people could, of course, join. It, it, that was the main thing. And then now we see the birth of what's called the church, where you and I are at today. And uh, the book of Acts is the story of how all of that began. In chapter 2, verse 41, just before the, um, the passage that Beatrice read, this is what it says. It says, those who accepted his message, this was Peter speaking to a large crowd in Jerusalem, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So that was a pretty good church service. 3,000 people uh, became Christians. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The, um, the birth of the church was the birth of people's new identity. That if you said that you were going to be a Christian... That was not a private decision. There was no such thing as a Christian who didn't belong to the church. It was one and the same. If you identified yourself as a follower of Jesus, it meant that you were added to a number, to a community, and that community was called the church. So your identity shifted from whatever it was before, whether your identity was being in a Jew or a Gentile, slave or free, male or female, what we talked about in the past. Your identity was now a Christian, and that's uh, the label that defined you. It wasn't just a private religion. It was something that, uh, that you were birthed into, a new community of faith. So what is this new identity? What did that look like? If you were to call yourself a Christian back then, what would it look like to identify yourself as a Christian? Well, this is what we heard about today, that in Acts 2, 42 to 47, it says that they devoted themselves to at least four things that they did. Now, the word devoted is interesting in that the word devoted means that they were constantly giving themselves to these things. Not just in behavior, but with their whole heart. So we see four things that were outlined in the passage that we just read. The first is they committed themselves to God's word. What this means is that they now had a new source of knowledge that was the authority in their life. <clears throat> Coming into this time, they could have um, had all kinds of different ways of understanding how to make sense of the world and what truth was. Now they're saying that there's one source of truth that defines us, and it's God's word. More specifically, it, was, uh, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now what this means is that they let, again, we're, we're using loaded language on purpose, they let a few Jewish males tell them what the truth was. Exclusively. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Fascinating. Fascinating. All the other ways to understand how the world is made and who we are and who God is, they've now restricted themselves to, well, what we have is the Bible, but what they had was a few men telling them what the truth was. And these men's uh, message 
was confirmed with miracles. So think of, I mean, these days you don't quite see it so much, but um, 20, 30 years ago, you would see these people called faith preachers. And they, they're mostly on TV, uh, you know, on, on Sunday morning. And uh, they always manage to sell you something, whatever it's, whether it's their latest book or holy oil or whatever it is, it's how they make a living. And, uh, and they, would, they confirm their message by healing. Well, now we look at that and we go, I mean, it's almost if somebody does healing, now we're suspicious of what they say, you know? But back then, it was these people performed miraculous signs in Jesus' name, and that validated what they were preaching. So the first thing was God's word, these, this apostolic teaching that now comes to us in the form of the Bible. Secondly, it was fellowship. So what distinguished these people is they met, it says, uh, every day. Can you imagine? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and then in house to house. Every single day. Church was not Sundays. Church was every single day they would meet together. And this became their new family. Now, there's some very good reasons for that. Because they got persecuted from other people, this became the only people they had, was the church. But it became their new community. We talked a while ago about this uh, Greek word that we translate as community or fellowship is koinonia. It's a very rich word. And it means more than just they hung out together. It meant that they were family together. They had left their old allegiances, and they now gave their allegiance to the church of Jesus Christ. And so they would use language. I, I've noticed when um, uh, I can tell, you know, where people are at, and you can tell where you're at, by how you describe this church. You can say, uh, you know, I go to... I go to every nation, and I really enjoy what they do. And there, there comes a time in people's language where they now say what we do, that it's moved from a they to a we. Well, this is part of what koinonia is about. This is our people. And, and this is, I identify myself with this group. So God's word, fellowship, and then prayer. Now they had a new relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit, that a new intimacy with God and a new power in their prayers. So this community was not built on people performing well enough. This was built on a people who weren't great, but they prayed and they trusted in Jesus. And because of what God did, they became a new kind of people. They were born again. And then finally, they gave. They devoted themselves to giving. So they devoted themselves to God's word, to meeting together, to praying together, and then to giving. What's very disturbing about this verse is uh, listen to how they described what giving looked like. All the believers were together and had everything in common, verse 44. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In chapter 4, it expands on this. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. That's koinonia. This is not just they attended a church service together. They were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. Notice they're equating the power of God with nobody having any financial need. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then an example of that is given of a man named uh, Joseph. Okay, this is radical. What some people say is that this sounds like communism or socialism. They go, is that what the church is supposed to be like? Is that nobody claims to have any property of their own, and they just give everything, lay it at the apostles' feet. You know, maybe that's the government or whatever. And uh, here's at least uh, two differences between what would be described as communism or socialism and what we see happening here in Acts chapter 2. The first is that nobody is forced to do this. It was all willingly done. So there's nobody commanding all of us that you have to sell everything that you have and give it to the church. That's not happening. Do I have an amen? Uh, that's, not, uh, that's not happening. <clears throat> and the second thing is that there was no... Um, uh, what was being distributed was what's called, what, what it wasn't was production. Now, in, in uh, communism, what I give away is what I've worked for. And uh, so even though I did the work, everybody benefits. That's not what we see here. The work that you do, you collect the wages, you collect the wages for the work that you do. It's not distributed. Your work isn't distributed. But you can freely give of that work the increase if you want to. So that's a big difference. Maybe those of you who aren't into that doesn't mean much to you, but it is a big difference. Otherwise, you're not motivated to work because you're going to work for me. That's great. I don't have to work anymore. Well, it's not like that. Now, uh, listen to this now. because this is So this is what they're doing constantly. They're constantly listening to somebody interpret the Bible, just a few guys. They're constantly meeting together. They're constantly in prayer. And they're constantly giving to one another in whatever needs there are. Now, what would you describe a group of people doing that? What would be a modern description of a kind of group that would live that kind of way? Well, there's a word for it. It's called a cult. Right? They only listen to a few people's teaching. They only meet uniquely together themselves. They have this special prayer that they have, and then they share everything between them. I think that's called a cult, as far as I can tell. So is this what you and I are signing up for? Is this the, you know... Like, we, we tricked you. You just thought it was a Sunday gathering. No, no, no. No, you've only got to listen to what, whoever's preaching up here. Those are the only people that, oh, man, it's just hard to say that out loud. But you, can, you only listen to us. You only meet together. We're all praying, and then you all have to share your money. Again, I, no amens. No amens. I remember... If you can put up the uh, put up the the logo, 
Uh, nope. There's going to be a logo that says the river. Oh, it is. Oh, look at that. Okay. Our church, before it was called Every Nation Vancouver, our church was called the river. We started as an Every Nation church. It was called Morningstar back then, but we started as an Every Nation church. But we, uh, we called our church the river. Isn't that great? I like that name. I like it. Okay. Now, if the, so we planted our church about uh, a little over 20 years ago, all right? So if you were attending our church over 20 years ago, let me just give you a, a snapshot of what it would have been like. So first of all, we did meet, I think it was at 6 or 6.30 on a Sunday night. So that's Sunday night. Then Monday night, pretty much all of you would have been involved in a ministry area, and that's when you met uh, in your ministry areas. If you were working for Kids Church, there was training for that, and so that was always on Monday nights. Tuesday or Wednesday night, you would be in your community, your D group. That's what you would do on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. We were open-minded. You had two options. And so that was Tuesday. And then on Thursday night, that was our training night. And so we had something called ENLI. Uh, it started off as VLI, Every Nation Leadership Institute. And we would have, on a Thursday night, 70 people, didn't matter whether you had kids or not, uh, you figured out how to get there. I don't know why it happened, but you did. There, there would be tons of people that would just get training on how to be a Christian. That was Thursday night. On Friday night, from 10 to 12 midnight, we had our prayer meeting. Every Friday night, we had a prayer meeting for two hours from 10 p.m. to midnight. Isn't that great? And we, were, we, we met in, a, in somebody's, uh, we've never owned a building, so we met in somebody's living room. And... Uh, packed the place out. There was, there was no room to sit. You're just right beside each other. During that time, our prayers were quite loud. I lost my voice for a few years. I couldn't raise my voice for a few years because you had to pray. And, uh, you know, above all that was going on there, we would, you know, and when we worshiped, people are jumping up and down. We had to stop doing that because the floorboards in the house were starting to wave during the prayer meeting, so we had to, we had to stop that. Uh, Saturday, you could do evangelism, and then you were right back on it next Sunday. <laughs> like, that was our church. Like, pretty much every day of the week, you were doing something at our church, or we didn't want to clog up your schedule so that you could also reach the lost. Like, that's what was going on. Now, here's what's interesting about that time. So I remember, you know, starting our church. When, I, when we started the church, um, uh, we, had, we had four children. Three of them were under three. I'm finishing off my doctoral dissertation, and we're building a house, planning the church. Yeah, OMC students. It's just what you did. There's a number of people here who are part of that. There's some people here who have moved on, and you know what they say? This is just so interesting to me. They say, I miss those days. Isn't that interesting? Like, would any of you miss those days? I wouldn't do that. I'm not going to Friday... Sunday, Monday. I'm not going to do that. 
we were having the time of our life. It was so fun. When it's described here, this is the words that are describing how they met together, right? It says they were filled with awe, gladness, sincerity, unity, self-sacrifice, and favor. They are having the time of their life. And we were called a cult. That's what we were called. Everybody who wasn't into that, but they're a cult. Because we preached the word of God exclusively. We were only preaching from here. We were always together, always praying, and trying to live sacrificially for one another. And our culture looks at that and has only one explanation that's what's going on. This is clearly a cult. Nobody else does that. I would never be a part of that. I would lose my freedoms, my personal rights and freedoms. I'm not going to be a part of that. So what's going on? You know, for those of you who are here back then, were you just all deceived? Is that what's going on? <clears throat> so why... Why was the early church not a cult? <clears throat> you could argue whether we were or not. I don't think we were, but I'll explain why in a minute. But look at the verse before this passage that we're reading. It's a summary. Uh, it's my favorite. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I think it summarizes what the uh, what the whole Christian message, what we call the gospel, what the whole gospel is about. It's Acts 2.38. It says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful summary of what Christianity is. We repent. We churn from false identities and idols, from being our own gods, and we churn and we follow Jesus as our Lord, and we follow his way of love. And then he gives us two gifts the gift of forgiveness, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are the things that are foundational to Christianity. You can't have those things, and you can't not have those things and still call yourself a Christian. Christianity is built on the forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus Christ and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be a Christian. So, uh, follow me now on this. going to have to concentrate for a minute. Devotion to God's Word to fellowship, to prayer, and to giving are the fruit of God's forgiveness and spirit. They're the fruit of God's forgiveness and spirit. So somehow, and this is where we're going to have to concentrate for a minute, somehow having your sins forgiven and being filled with the Holy Spirit leads to that kind of life in such a way that it feels like good news and the best thing that you could imagine. Somehow, those two things are connected to this kind of experience of church and having this new identity. How are those two things related? Okay. Anytime we're part of a community, whether it's a family or a church or a business, there's two things that you have to concern yourself with how to process bad stuff, and how to move toward good stuff. 
Okay, it's just, it's just what all human relationships are. You gotta somehow process the bad stuff, because there's always gonna be bad stuff, right? You gotta somehow deal with that. If you're part of a family, the only way that you're not gonna have bad stuff in your life is if you live very, very far away, and even then you're still there. So there's just always bad stuff. But we gotta, so we gotta figure out how to process the bad stuff, and then we have to somehow become better. That's what every family, you can't, you can't just stay stuck, you have to grow and improve and contribute, and you gotta do better. So uh, here's how the gospel helps us deal with all the bad stuff, and then helps us change and experience love and healthy relationship with God and others. We repent, turn toward love, and then we receive two gifts. Forgiveness deals with all the bad stuff, and the gift of the Holy Spirit enables us to become loving and love God and others better. Okay, you follow me now? Forgiveness deals with everything that's wrong, and then the empowering of the Spirit enables us to do what's right. This is the gospel. If you and I don't believe in forgiveness, what do we have at our disposal with everything that's going wrong? We blame. We, it's called, uh, what is it, cancel culture, right? I'm just out of here. I feel taken advantage of. I feel misunderstood. Whatever the thing is, I'm out. I'm just out. And I will never, I will never be come back in. I'll never come back into the family or the church or the business or the club or whatever it is. I'll never come back in until you guys pay and perform better. And when I think you're a safe enough place, I might come back and grace you with my presence. Right now, in our culture, uh, People's treatment of wrong is all about a self-serving sense of justice. And we will not belong until you show yourself fully on my side, agreeing with all that I agree, that you don't offend me in any way, and then maybe we'll be able to walk together. Maybe we'll see. But I'm watching. The miracle of the church is that it deals with bad through forgiveness. This is radical. This is radical. I listen to people talk about how they're processing trauma in their life. Have you ever had anything bad happen to you? Don't raise your hand. Like everybody has had something bad happen to you. And then I hear people say, I'm working that through. I'm always curious what they're doing when they're working that through. What does it mean to work through having something bad being done against you. How do you, what do you, like, what are you thinking about as you're working it through? How it's their fault, how it wasn't your fault, how to stay close to somebody even though they're dangerous, perhaps, not fully trustworthy. I'm working it through. As far as I can see in Scripture, uh, the way that Jesus worked through the crimes that we did against him 
we, you and I committed against him is he came in closer and forgave our sins. This is remarkable. And he gave us a pattern for the only way that you and I can ever rightly process wrongs being done against us is through the forgiveness of sins. I would venture to say that it is impossible to stay in this church unless you grab hold of the concept of forgiveness. It's impossible. Because there's just too much sin here in me, in all of us. We can't live here without grabbing hold of the power of forgiveness. But something powerful happens when we grab hold of forgiveness. It frees us from judgmentalism and suspicion. It just sets us free. Debbie and I have been married for a while now, you know, 36 years and counting. And I've done over the years one or two things that weren't very good towards her. A couple, maybe, I can't remember even. <clears throat> and she didn't do any towards me, but I did a couple towards her. Now, now, how do you, what do you do with that? I'll tell you what we used to do. Be better. And then I would say, yeah, I'm going to be better too. Oh, yeah, you wait, wait till tomorrow. It's going to be an awesome day. I'm going to be way better than today. And we built, listen now, this is a very big deal. We, at the beginning of our marriage, built our relationship on our performance and ability to improve. And then you get into the marriage 10, 20, 30 years, and you go, you didn't change nearly as much as I was hoping for. <laughs> and uh, neither did I. And there's only one reason why we stay together is because we've learned to forgive one another. Now, here's what happens when forgiveness becomes the foundation of a relationship. What was once offensive and irritating is now cute. Isn't that amazing? Like, you know, I don't like the way you sleep. I don't like the way you eat. I don't like the, like, it just, you know, it just, whatever the thing is, you know, I don't like your opinion on that. Now it's cute. Forgiveness is so powerful, it transforms offenses into endearment. That's how powerful forgiveness is. I don't know of another way to overcome an offense aside through for forgiveness. Let's say that we feel offended in that people misunderstand us. They misunderstand us because of male and female, because of uh, cultural differences. And we can be angry about that, right? We can say, you don't get me. You don't know what my culture has been through. You don't understand me. Look at you. You're white, privileged. How could you understand me? And then you could demand, and, and I'll try. You could demand that I do better. And I'm going to try better. I really am. And at the end of the day, 
you will walk with me, not because I tried better, but because you forgave me. And this is hard to believe, but maybe those things that were once offenses are just, ah, God bless him, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe that's what would happen. Maybe that's how powerful forgiveness is, is that the things that once made us angry no longer make us angry. Now, I don't know whether you've ever felt forgiven. I don't know if you've ever felt that before. It's the most amazing experience you could ever have. I've told it before, but I'd like to tell it again. Uh, there's, I have, in my relationship with Debbie, there are, I have no secrets. Everything that I've ever done wrong and we've now had 36 years for me to review, you know? So everything that I've ever done wrong, I've told Debbie, everything. Some things I forgot, and over the time you remember, I go, oh, I did that wrong too. And then she looks at me with tears in her eyes and says, I love you, and I'm so proud of you. And I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. And then I remind her who she's talking to. <laughs> like, it's me, remember? Remember the guy who just said a stupid thing like five minutes ago? And the person who's insensitive and is, is learning very slowly how to be kind and generous? Remember that person? And you get to be fully known and fully accepted is phenomenal. And when you experience being forgiven, it changes how you want to relate to others. You want to do that to others too. Because there's no way, I mean, you can be a hypocrite if you want, it's hard to live that way. But once you've tasted forgiveness, you just see how much better it is than living in judgment and suspicion and self-righteousness and entitlement it's just exhausting. Can I please implore us? You will not be able to stay in a church family unless you work through the issues of forgiveness. You, can't, you won't be able to stay here. You can move on, really. And you'll find another church just like ours, imperfect, with people who are not like you and don't understand where you're coming from. And you won't be able to stay in a church unless you work through bad, not by separating yourself, but by understanding the power of forgiveness and trusting God to be just, even when you feel misunderstood. And then we have the power of the Holy Spirit. The way that you and I become better people is we pray and we seek God and we ask for miracles. Can I tell you that um, every Christian church is charismatic? Um, I grew up in the Baptist church as well, had the same kind of hips. And, uh, um, and so, you know, there's uh, uh, no mention of any spiritual gifts. 
no mention at all. But you'll never see a church more committed to seeing the gospel transform hearts through conversion. It's a charismatic church. Believes in the power of the Holy Spirit. We as a community must believe in miracles. And the hearts changed. Blind eyes open. Prejudices fall away. Resentment healed. We need to believe in the power of God. And it's the only foundation that a Christian church has. We do not gather because we're great folk. We gather because we're forgiven and we believe in a God that changes lives dramatically. It's what we built the church upon. If we don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, what we end up believing in is control. So if the opposite of forgiveness is to separate, the opposite of the power of the Holy Spirit is to control. And that's what a cult does. A cult uses manipulation, control, pressure, shame, guilt, whatever it is, to, to, uh, to muster up willpower to try to do better and conform. And if there's any church that behaves that way, it's a dangerous church. If there's any church that isn't built on forgiveness, it's a dangerous church. But the Christian church is built on forgiveness and believing that God changes hearts. If I meet with somebody in discipleship, we're a disciple-making church, I do not believe that I have the power, nor do you, to change anyone else's hearts. I don't have the power to do that, nor do I want the power to do that. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And so we meet, we hopefully inspire, and serve, and be kind, and listen, and maybe even rebuke, but we never control, or bully, or manipulate. We don't do that because it's the Spirit's job to bring conviction. It's not our job. So, let me conclude with this. Let me ask you. I mean, don't put up your hand. Do you struggle to, re to read the Bible? Like, is that a struggle for you? It's okay if it is. Is it hard to read the Bible? Is it hard to say, this is my church. Is that hard for you? Is it hard for you to identify yourself as this being your primary identity as opposed to your ethnicity or gender or economic status? Is this, are we your people? Is that hard to say? Should be a little hard, I would think. Is it hard for you to pray? Do you get sleepy when you pray? I get sleepy when I pray. Is it hard for you to pray? And here's the real kicker. More than any other uh, expansion on the topic is giving. It's mentioned in more detail in Acts 2.47 than the other three, which is really surprising. It's more is said about it. Is it hard for you to give? Tithing is one thing. But is it hard for you to have a generous spirit toward the people around you? Do you count pennies? 
Is that hard for you? Please be honest with yourself. Is it hard for you? When you look at someone else's crimes, is it hard for you to have a generous heart towards them? I think we all struggle with these things, don't we? Now, here's how a typical sermon should end. Try harder. I'm going to give you three tips on how to read your Bible more regularly. We'll give you an acronym for how to pray. We'll give you a, a, a payment plan for how to be generous. And we'll be super easy on you when it comes to community. Just show up once a week. It's no problem. What if the reason why, what if the reason why we struggle with those four things has nothing to do with those four things? It has everything to do whether we've embraced forgiveness and spirit. What if that's our real problem? What if we don't know how to forgive or be forgiven? And that's why we're distant. That's why we're suspicious of God. That's why we don't pray. We don't pray because we don't believe that prayer changes anything. We struggle because we struggle to trust in the Spirit and to trust in the power of forgiveness. What if that's our real problem? What if the next time you look and say, I don't want to read the Bible, say, I don't think I believe you're good or powerful. I don't think you really forgive, and I don't think you really change things. So why would I read your Bible and pray to you? What if that's the real issue? What if it's not about a technique, but what if it's about a heart that has been bathed in forgiveness and a heart that has been filled with the Spirit of God? And because of that, with glad and sincere hearts, we meet together. We give generously. We consume God's word. We pray without ceasing. What if that's our issue? That we've yet to fully let the gospel penetrate our hearts to the degree that God would want. So I would like us, worship team, you can come up. I would like us today, you can tell this is going to be our theme going through Acts. I would like us to have an opportunity to receive forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. And I'm going to ask us to stand up in a moment. We're going to go through a worship song. But I think there's some of you here who have never experienced having your sins forgiven. I remember the day that I became a Christian, and I remember asking God to forgive my sins, and I remember the weight that was lifted off of my shoulders when I was forgiven. Changed my life. I remember that day. I can picture it in my head. I was forgiven. Maybe you need to forgive. Maybe your identity is being a Jew or a Gentile or some other ethnicity, is being male or female, is having money or not having money. Maybe you have power, you don't have power. I don't know what your old identity is. But God is asking you to not judge the people around you, but to forgive. So do you need to be forgiven? Do you need to forgive? Do you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and be filled with his love and power. Do you need that?
I urge you with all that is in me, need that. Need it. Some of you have been Christians for a while and you're working through your theology. I don't know what your theology is. Need the Holy Spirit. Just need the Holy Spirit. I am not loving on my own. I need to be born again and I need to be filled with the Spirit. So could we please stand together? I'd like to pray for you. Do you want forgiveness and spirit to be your primary identity? You're not somebody who holds grudges. You're not somebody who tries really hard and is really good at applying themselves in self-discipline. Are you willing today to let forgiveness and the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit to be the foundation on which you build your life? Would you like to be saved again today? We're going to worship. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to invite God's Spirit. He's already here, but we're going to acknowledge God's Spirit. We're going to ask for miracles tonight, for the miracle of forgiveness and for the miracle of the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, I think about how Christianity can get presented as we, we should read our Bibles and pray and go to church and tell our friends about Jesus and be giving and tithe or something. All these shoulds. And I read your word and I see the devotion of your early church. And it was just the natural result of being forgiven and being filled. It's just what comes out. It's just what it looks like to identify as a Christian. So I'm asking on behalf of my friends, would you please bring the power of your spirit tonight in a way that would convict us of our sin, that we would see our need for forgiveness, that you would give us the humility to forgive others who have wronged us, and that you would baptize us in your Holy Spirit. Let's worship God and focus on him now.